Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with a new bipartisan bill by Congressman Ro Khanna and Senator Marco Rubio introduced today, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022, which would reorganize the Cabinet and the Treasury around a broader model than the military-focused National Security Council, that would encompass America's economic, social and cultural strengths to revive our industry and build back our middle class. Joining us is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives, and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest book is The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he just helped draft a new bill being put forward today by Representative Rokana and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. Then we'll examine what is on the agenda and what might emerge from the UN COP15 conference on biodiversity underway in Montreal, Canada, which aims to protect 30% of the world's land and sea by 2030, in what 100 of the world's environmental ministers are calling the post-2020 global diversity framework. Joining us is Peter Ward, a paleontologist who teaches biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington. He's published widely on biodiversity and the fossil record and is an expert on mass extinctions. His award-winning books include On Methuselah's Trail, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, Out of Thin Air, Dinosaurs, Birds, and Earth's Ancient Atmosphere, Under a Green Sky, The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Under Ice Caps, A New History of Life, and Lamarck's Revenge. We will examine the obvious link between global warming and the loss of biodiversity with a million species at risk of extinction and how indigenous people make up 5% of the world's population but protect 80% of its remaining biodiversity. Then finally we'll get an assessment of the announcement today by the Secretary of Energy of an historic breakthrough at the Lawrence Livermore Lab where scientists produced more energy from nuclear fusion than the laser energy they used to power the experiment. Joining us is Arjan Makajani, who is the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. He holds a PhD in engineering specializing in nuclear fusion from the University of California at Berkeley. He has spent decades working to promote an economy based on completely renewable energy. His books include Nuclear Wastelands, Mending the Ozone Hole, Carbon-Free and Nuclear-Free, A Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy. And his latest book is Prosperous Renewable Maryland, Roadmap for a Healthy, Economical and Equitable Energy Future. And joining us now, Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult with a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. 
Izzy Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the New Green Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Future, and he just helped draft a new bill being put forward today by Representative Rokana and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks, Ian. It's great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And tell us more about the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022, which I guess makes use of two existing federal entities, the White House Cabinet, which had reconfigured into the National Development Council, and then the U.S. Treasury Federal Financing Bank, which would finance the execution of a national development strategy. So explain it, if you will. Sure, Ian. Glad to do it. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, So um, I've worked in the past both with uh, Representative Khanna and with Senator Rubio on national development-related projects. And so I knew that they would both be game. Um, uh, And so about two and a half years ago, when I started putting this plan together, I kind of put it together partly with them in mind. The basic idea was essentially that we have a number of federal instrumentalities that are sort of vestigial and sort of left over from previous times when we were a much smarter country when it came to things like national development and a, maintaining a balanced economy that kept uh, that sort of undergirded a, a growing and thriving middle class. Um, and I thought, you know, if we could sort of rediscover the original purposes of some of these particular entities and then sort of repurpose them, so to speak, by restoring some of their old missions to them and by reorganizing or reconfiguring them uh, in certain ways to sort of optimize that, that particular process that we might be able to get this done, right? Because we wouldn't have to create new institutions that would make people suspicious. There, We wouldn't have to create institutions that were not democratically accountable in the way that these institutions are uh, and so forth, right? So the basic idea was, first of all, to take all uh, White House cabinet positions that are essentially charged with oversight responsibilities for the nation's primary infrastructures and primary industries on the one hand, along with leaders of the private sector and with various um, state and local officials uh, on the other hand, and pull them together into one National Development Council who would be charged with the task of uh, putting together a national development strategy and then regularly updating that. The analogy here, um, the, the most obvious analogy is to the National Security Council, which way back in 1947 brought all of the defense and security oriented agencies together into one council structure so that they could all be working on the same page and basically be coordinating what they were doing. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we were doing that in a constructive, on a constructive matter or a constructive mission uh, rather than a destructive one, right? A, a building mission, in other words, rather than a military or, um, you know, sort of warlike uh, mission. So that was the first. Uh, and then the second institution uh, is a little known, and indeed seemingly now unknown, institution within the Treasury Department, and that's Federal Financing Bank. And the Federal Financing Bank is actually a bank. And what it does is it gathers federal funds and it levers those funds into lending uh, for various projects of various kinds that the various cabinet level agencies themselves pursue or endorse. And I thought, well, if we, in effect, repurpose those cabinet level agencies and put them on the same page to coordinate national development strategy, well, then the counterpart uh, 
uh, act to do uh, as far as the financing of that sort of strategy implementation is concerned would be uh, to take the federal financing bank and give it that particular mandate as well, uh, as well as to provide it with some additional funding. And so this particular act does both of those things. And what's kind of cool about it, again, is it just simply repurposes and reconfigures existing institutions so you don't have to make anything new. And secondly, because the White House cabinet is democratically accountable, just as the president him or herself is, and because the Department of Treasury is within the, the executive branch and hence is just as accountable as is that branch, then so is the federal financing bank. So we've got accountability uh, on the one hand and a kind of national development oversight that will be conducted in a coordinated fashion that doesn't, you know, sort of wastefully duplicate efforts and doesn't, you know, sort of miss or over overlook various uh, gaps when it comes to ongoing national development on the other hand. Well, of course, the fault of the National Security Council starting in 1947 uh, was that it was always f focused on national security, on military yeah. matters, and it never took into account in terms of the massive defense spending that we've had subsequent to it. And we still have enormous defense spending today. I think it's like the combined uh, amount of what the next eight or nine. Nine uh, potential rivals combined. Yeah. The U.S. outspends them all. Yeah. So our national security, and I started out this program many <laughs> of decades ago at the beginning of the Reagan administration, uh -huh. calling the program national security in a quest to get a broader definition of what national security is, not just beyond military and foreign policy, but into uh, our economy, our society, our culture, our soft power. So it seems to me that you're picking up on that notion that we're basically shortchanging most of what America stands for. Absolutely. I mean, I think you and I are exactly on the same page there, Ian. I think we're making a terrible mistake if we think that national security is simply about military power or about having bases at various places in the world or coordinating intelligence and things like that. I mean, not to belittle those things, but the thought that that's what that's the entirety of national security is just crazy. And indeed, I think we would probably find that we had to spend a lot less on actual defense programs if we actually still had a robust and productive and innovative and uh, middle-class supporting economy of the kind that we once had. So if we sort of recognize that the economy is just as important a strategic matter, if not indeed more important a strategic matter than is the military, um, then it seems to me we will actually have a much more secure polity, a much healthier polity, and a polity that can actually be much more helpful in the world than we presently are. Um, in a way, you can also sort of say this is sort of a, a reach back to um, the Alexander Hamilton vision of the United States or what the U.S. could become. And it's a bit of a reach back to the Abraham Lincoln view of what the country could become uh, as well. So both of those chaps sort of understood that if the, if the country was going to retain its sovereignty, its independence, once it had won it, once it was a newfound, uh, once it had a newfound independence from Great Britain uh, in the late 18th century, and then if it was to retain its unity and remain an integral whole um, in the mid 19th 19th century, uh, there would have to be a diversified economy that took account of and paid attention to every region of the country, every locality of the country, other, every ethnicity of the country, um, and that, you know, sort of paid attention to the multiplicity of distinct industries and sectors 
that all have to go in uh, to making up one great big diversified national economy. Absent that, a country either lapses back into colonial status, de facto, if not de jure, as Hamilton understood would happen, or it just falls apart into sort of radically distinct uh, sections or, or regions with altogether different economies that are in effect irreconcilable, as had begun to happen in the North and the South uh, during Abraham Lincoln's time. So in a sense, we're sort of rediscovering, I think, the, the, the great um, uh, Congressman Khanna and the great Senator Rubio, I think, are both historically in Formed, both rather scholarly fellows with really just brilliant staffers uh, who kind of get that, right? They understand uh, the Hamiltonian vision, the Lincolnian vision, the FDR vision, and so forth. And so, um, you know, I was pretty hopeful when I got started on this thing that both of them might be interested, and they sure enough turned out to be, and they worked beautifully together uh, in, in getting it out. And of course, this is the bridges the gap between the liberal and the conservative, yes. kind of being on the far liberal side and Rubio on the the more conservative side. So, I mean, you're not creating a new entity, which, you know, another bureaucracy and reducing bureaucracy as opposed to creating it. So where, where does it go from now since the bill was introduced today? So the hope now is to build up a great deal of support on both sides of the aisle in both houses of Congress, right? We're calling it bicameral and bipartisan simultaneously. And, and we think there's a, a real prospect of that, right? There does seem to be a growing awareness on the part of many Republicans and Democrats alike that the sort of globalization binge, the outsourcing binge, the deindustrialization binge that the country has been on for several decades now was a terrible mistake that has left the country economically much less healthy than it once was productively much less healthy than it was, and ultimately then even militarily less healthy uh, than it was. Um, and there's a sort of a recognition that, you know, if you simply give everything over uh, to large multinational corporations, just because they're headquartered in the U.S. doesn't mean, um, or just because they're incorporated in the state of Delaware, doesn't mean they're going to be employing Americans, that they're going to be paying people, you know, union scale wages or middle class wages or what have you. They're simply going going to go to those places where they can exploit the cheapest labor or the cheapest resources. And if that means, you know, relocating production abroad, they'll do it. That's where their loyalties lie, not here at home. So I think you do have, a, I think, a growing awareness that something like a kind of economic patriotism that isn't just chess beating of the kind that Donald Trump engaged in, but that actually tries to make a difference on the ground by, you know, making the institutional reforms that are necessary and providing the uh, financing and the coordinating that's necessary uh, to make it happen uh, is, is, is truly going to have to be a national priority again for a while at least. And hopefully indefinitely, you know, hopefully forever. That's another kind of critical piece of the story here, I think, is that, you know, somewhere along the line, development economists develop this kind of crazy idea that national development is a kind of a one-off achievement, right? It's a sort of a, a switching function, right? You start as an undeveloped country, then you develop, and then you coast, you know, you're done. Um, but my own view, I think, you know, Bob Dylan, it seems to me, is the best development economist out there. And what I mean by that is the line that he had in that uh, great song, It's All Right, Ma, where he said, he not busy being born is busy dying. Seems to me that a national economy is the same way. If it's not constantly being reborn, constantly developing, constantly growing, constantly spreading new innovations throughout the entirety of itself, um, then it's really in a state of decay. It's really dying. Development is, on the, in other words, forever. Um, and so, you know, if we wanted to use the, we could sort of, re, we could update the Biden slogan of building back better and say, 
building back better forever, right? Never not building back better. Um, in other words, is the name of the game, I think. Um, and this bill, in effect, uh, institutes or sort of um, uh, acts upon, makes institutional changes that are responsive to that that realization, that recognition of uh, about the, the, the true nature of, of national development. So just in closing, it's very impressive that you've gotten this far to get a bipartisan bill out today into an environment where you, it's essentially a kind of political food fight that's just going to get nastier and nastier. Yeah. So do you think this is a possible way to bring the parties together? You know, we had this National Security Council and it's dominated our economy and our treasury and we haven't thought about the rest of the country and now we're going to start coordinating all of the government agencies and have a broader definition of national security and which will vitalize our soft power, improve our economy, and ultimately actually improve our defenses uh, at much lesser cost, where we'll be investing in Main Street. Yeah, I think it can work, Ian, for uh, sort of two two related reasons. I mean, the first is we really haven't had a sense, a coherent sort of sense of a national purpose that many people could kind of get on board with or, or share in for a little while now. And this provides that. And secondly, and relatedly, if we really do begin to restore our industrial capacity and our productive capacity, and really do begin to bring back real jobs that can sustain full families, there won't be nearly as many desperate people or, you know, people with nothing better to do on their hands um, of a kind who really kind of fuel, I think, a lot of the insanity that we find on social media um, which, of course, was a form of insanity that was just ripe for the uh, exploitation by people like Trump and other such trolls, right? Uh, in other words, people who actually have lengthy attention spans and senses of purpose uh, might actually now find an outlet again to sort of put their skills, their capacities, their attentions, and their interests to work um, on a single, again, national project. Seems to me that's going to pull a lot of Democrats and Republicans and independents together into this one project. And it also seems like it's likely to snowball. Basically, success along these lines will simply breed yet more success along these lines, and we can make it bigger and bigger and better and better. Well, Robert Hockett, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be with you again. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He continues to consult with a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution, and he's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and the author of a number of books, the latest of which is The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he drafted a new bill being put forward today by Representative Brokana and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking to what is on the agenda and what might emerge from the UN COP15 conference on biodiversity underway in Montreal, Canada.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Peter Ward, a paleontologist who teaches biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington. He has published widely on biodiversity and the fossil record and is an expert on mass extinction. His award-winning books include On Methuselah's Trail, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, Out of Thin Air, Dinosaurs, Birds and Earth's Ancient Atmosphere, and Under a Green Sky, and The Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps. And his latest books are The New History of Life and Lamarck's Revenge. Welcome to Background Briefing. Peter Ward. Thank you, Ian. So, Peter, what do you make of the COP15 conference underway in Montreal on biodiversity? The ministers, environmental ministers from over 100 countries are arriving now in Canada for, I mean, it's been going on for a few days now, but now it's sort of getting serious. The presidency of the conference is held by China but there are already complaints from the delegates that there's a leadership vacuum. So do you think China is serious about this? Because the goal of, of the COP15, uh, which the Canadians are hosting and have made a, a big deal about, is 30 for 30, protecting 30% of the land and sea by 2030. That's the goal. So uh, what's your sense of whether that's going to be reached? Well, I think it's appropriate that they're asking that just before Christmas. I mean, it could be, dear Santa Claus, um, let's get 30 for 30. And then, of course, you settle for anything or something. I think that goal is impossible to achieve with the way we have as many people on the planet. I, I think it's great that we at least have such meetings and that we put out goals. And so the 30 for 30, I don't believe there's a chance it will be reached, but at least it gives us a target. And this reminds me, of course, of the climate conferences. But Ian, I think uh, having been out to the Indo-Pacific on many trips in the last five years, it's sort of ironic that the Chinese are the people who are hopefully going to run this new meeting, seeing what they are doing to biodiversity across the Pacific Ocean region. Well, they're, they're involved in pirate logging and pirate fishing, are they, are they not? Oh, it's yes. Uh, every country I've gone through in the Indo-Pacific recently, um, the ministries of fisheries and the ministry of forestries are always driving BMWs, Mercedes, the most beautiful cars you've ever seen. The Chinese come in, they build a hospital here, a bridge there, and then take over all logging and all fisheries. So... The, and now, of course, they are the presidency, uh, the chair of this conference, COP15, in Montreal underway. But clearly, Peter, and you're the right person to talk to in this regard, the, the links between global warming and biodiversity are absolutely inextricable, are they not? Oh, absolutely. And I guess one of the sad things about science, this may sound like a wild error, the Alvarez's, who told us that indeed the dinosaurs were killed off by a great asteroid, kind of made it seem as if all the mass extinctions were related to asteroid hits. And yet that was the only one. The rest came from carbon dioxide, volcanically produced carbon dioxide, but I don't care if it's a volcano or a Volvo, too much CO2 in the atmosphere causes mass death. And we are now at a point where we have CO2 rising faster even than during the great Permian extinction, 
when great volcanic emanations caused CO2 to rise so fast that ultimately 90% of life died off. So in terms of the focus on this 30 for 30 conference underway in Canada, COP15, apparently they're at least saying that the key drivers of biodiversity loss are overconsumption, pesticides, and intensive agriculture. Uh, anything else you would add to that? Well, I think what's really driving an awful lot of future misery is going to be sea level rise. As we have more and more, this, this is happening. We know everywhere on, the, everywhere on ocean coasts, the slow and exorable rise has taken place. But my greatest fear is that it is the low latitude and certainly the low elevation rice fields as they get inundated and not just covered because salt water goes sideways. But as rice fields are wiped out, we have ever increasing human misery and lack of food, which is going to push towards more and more fields, which means cutting down more and more forests. So is this likely to be addressed, do you think? All of these environmental ministers from 100 countries must see the, the relationship, the link between global warming and biodiversity loss. Yeah, they're not naive. Um, again, I find meetings like this are very good that it gets the publicity out and the public can read about this and see these goals, which is a good thing. Education is a good thing. Whether it does anything, um, sometimes my cynical nature takes over and I can be no more cynical than I am about the United States of America, which has refused to sign the treaty. The only nation on earth that has refused to sign this treaty because our, our Senate won't ratify it. You need two thirds vote in our Senate. And we have a bunch of know-nothings who are not going to sign this. And it makes me ashamed to be an American. And America, of course, is not at this conference, right? Along with the Vatican, they're the two holdouts. Well, there's a lot of Americans there, but right. there is no official representation. Where's our president? Why isn't he there? That would do more at this moment to affect this in terms of American interest than anything else. Right. Well, it is a shame that the U.S. is not there and these large countries, Brazil, Russia and China, are very much where the focus is or where the greatest need for protecting what's left of the Brazilian rainforest, for example. Russia is a petrostate. I don't know what kind of environmental credentials they have. And as we've discussed, China is busily raping the ocean and the forest as fast as they can in other small countries where most of the rainforests are. So let's talk a little bit about the other link, not just the link between global warming and biodiversity loss, but the link between the indigenous peoples of the planet. They make up 5% of the world's population, but they protect 80% of its remaining biodiversity. So there you have a challenge, do you not, Peter Ward, that the indigenous peoples who are being slaughtered in Brazil by Bolsonaro's thugs, uh, they don't have a lot of power, do they? No, and I think also of Canada. Uh, I did my degrees in Canada and it's a country I very much love, but there, of course, that it's a very un uneasy truce, really, between the increase in the amount of forest being cut down, let's say, in western British Columbia. Uh, I've worked in what used to be called the Queen Charlotte Islands, now Haida Gwaii, 
in all of Western British Columbia, the amount of timber cutting goes on is even more than in the U.S. As far as I can tell, there were even fewer safeguards. That it was unbelievable. And Canada, of course, is one of well, it's the country that's hosting this. So it's way more than we rich countries pointing to the poorer countries like Brazil. Say, hey, protect your rainforest as we cut ours down. I, I think the level of hypocrisy is stunning to me. And speaking of the indigenous peoples, again, I know mostly the countries I've worked in in the Indo-Pacific and the small nations, the island nations, which are most threatened by sea level rise. But there, too, we're seeing the larger countries coming in and simply taking the resources. The indigenous people are generally powerless. In almost every place I've been, there have been a small number that are put up as figureheads, but it's industry that runs those countries, and it's not their industry. Well, at least Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada has acknowledged the reality of the indigenous people being you know, only 5% of the world's population yet protecting 80% of the remaining biodiversity and how they're under assault and are powerless, as you pointed out. He at least is talking about Canada's efforts to deal with the First Nations in terms of its understanding about some of the horrors of, of the forced schools and the numbers of kids that have been buried in unmarked graves and that whole hideous history of good Christians taking these kids from um, First Nations tribes and turning them into model Western sure. citizens at great expense to destroying their culture, their language, etc. So will that be a part of this conference? Will there be a, a reckoning amongst other countries like Russia? Its minorities are being marginalized. And in particular, as I mentioned earlier in Brazil, where they're literally killing the uh, indigenous peoples in the in the rainforest in order to extract gold and timber and cut down rainforest for beef for cattle yep mcdonald's burgers mcdonald's drives deforestation there ain't no doubt about that well it's even in the united states there was a recent article last week where um first nation americans are now in charge in some of the larger reservations and they are complaining that we are we are being required for five cents on the acre to maintain the biodiversity here. It, it's complete benign neglect, as Nixon used to talk about civil rights in America, you know, benign neglect. Um, I, I Again, I, I'm old enough now, Ian, that I've, I've seen so much of promise that has never followed through. And this whole 30 and 30, what a great idea. If that could happen, it would be fabulous. Where are the benchmarks? Because I noticed that there were, I think, 30 provisions that were supposed to be at least ratified in this particular COP. Only three of them have been agreed upon. And again, if we cannot come to grips now, what's it going to be like in 2030? And I have great fear for my children. Well, I can't get over the the fact that the United States is not there at this conference. I mean, you know, Biden made a big deal of, out of the recent COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, which, by the way, is the playground for Saudi princes, and they're not exactly interested in uh, preserving biodiversity. They're more interested in selling every last drop of oil they have 
but that's another issue, I guess. But along the short is he's he's had John Kerry as a very prominent guy leading efforts at uh, dealing with climate change, and yet they're not dealing with biodiversity. It's like how could you have this massive hole in the logic of the future of the planet? Well, I found out long ago that the American dollar feels no shame. And the more you have, the less shame you feel. <laughs> so our big corporations and the very wealthy. I was very, very happy to hear e Elon Musk get booed off the stage with the Dave Chappelle comedy business down in San Francisco, where finally, and and he was so surprised that what, what I was struck by, he was surprised they were booing him, the shock on his face. It, it is, again, the very wealthy who are at this point really needing to put their bucks where their mouth is. We need the big corporations and the wealthy to really help with this approach. The 30% the of land being turned into reserves would vastly help biodiversity on this planet. There's no doubt about that. And at least we're having this meeting. I mean, I, my, my students say, Dr. Ward, you cannot be too cynical. You've got to have hope. And it's good for these young people because they're young and they do have hope. And I think it's beholden for us. What gives me hope, Ian, that's a, there's you, that you exist, that you talk like this, that you have radio and care. I mean, that that gives me hope. Well, you know, sometimes I wonder whether I'm, I'm kind of the purveyor of the daily dose of doom because I'm just in covering these subjects, people tend to turn off global warming and now biodiversity. But as I say, that this is the most shocking thing of all, that this huge component of the future of the planet, the U.S. doesn't even have a representation in terms of dealing with it. And, right, and it's happening right next door in Canada. At least the Canadians are stepping up. Well, I agree. But then let's let's look at let's give some hope here. And for instance, I remember the bad old days when I would go to a pub and you had to wash all your clothes the next day because of all the smoke in there. Or the bad old days when people that were gay had to hide relationships. The bad old days when there could be no gay marriage. Things do change. And right. perhaps appreciation that biodiversity is as important or more important than working on climate change or social issues. I certainly know my students. I mean, it, what gives me hope, I teach still. I refuse to retire because it keeps me young and it keeps me seeing these young, fresh faces full of hope. And I think that is the greatest thing our species has to give. And just to bring this the issue back home, since you're there in the state of Washington, I mean, I'm in California. In terms of biodiversity, the global warming that's causing the massive amounts of forest fires, which you've experienced and we've experienced here, that has to be hideous in terms of both global warming and, and biodiversity, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And just, again, in my lifetime, to have I've lived my whole life pretty much in the Pacific Northwest. And to now, we have had to, as many people have, put in vast smoke filtration systems in our homes because it is so dangerous to be breathing this stuff. And the days, the many days now where they say you cannot, you can no longer exercise outside, too dangerous to exercise outside. And it is, if that, if you ever wanted a sense that we are in a new world because of climate, that has to be it. But the effect this is having on biodiversity is absolutely devastating. It is the change of climate causes organisms to have to shift 
northward in so many cases, plants, species, insects, but it's also the fact that we carry so many organisms from one country to another, and in so doing, release these pests in places they shouldn't be. So again, yep, I mean, anybody, people who don't say that the climate is changing, Ian, we had about 12 inches of snow on my house last week at this time. 12 inch snows have happened, at least in the previous decades of my life, almost never. They happen every winter here now. As you know, as the climate gets warmer, there's more water in the atmosphere. There are always gonna be bursts of cold air from the Arctic. They hit the wetter atmosphere, there's more snow and there's way more rain. How can anybody deny that climate change is taking place? And yet, and yet, people still deny that biodiversity is in crisis because they can't see that as, as clearly as they can with climate, which is why I'm hoping we're moving to an understanding. Smoking is bad, stop doing it. Repression is bad. Well, I'll tell you, biodiversity loss is bad as well. Well, the scientists are warning us that one million species are at risk of extinction. And, you know, we're just talking about the fires in, in the West. They also had huge fires in Australia, which killed, I believe, five billion of these animals, you know, and everybody loves koalas and kangaroos. And I spent a sabbatical year, 2014, in Adelaide, and that was the greatest single fear. Eucalyptus, as you know, has oils in it that causes it when it's really dry to burn at enormous heat. And so their single greatest fear, I mean, they had a Black Thursday in Adelaide when many were killed, and these fires are just a time bomb in Australia. So there too, at least they understand what's going on and are trying to do what they can. Well, Peter Ward, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I want to thank you. And thank you for doing what you do. Well, uh, it doesn't feel like it's enough, but I do the best I can. And I... it, it, Oh, it's something. So right. again, thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Ward, who's a paleontologist who teaches biology and earth and space sciences at the University of Washington. He has published widely on biodiversity and the fossil record, and is an expert on mass extinctions. His books include On Methuselah's Trail, Rare Earth, Why Complex Life is Uncommon in the Universe, Out of Thin Air, Dinosaurs, Birds, and Earth's Ancient Atmosphere, Under a Green Sky, the Flooded Earth, Our Future in a World Without Ice Caps, and his latest books are The New History of Life and Lamarck's Revenge. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the announcement today by the Secretary of Energy of an historic breakthrough at the Lawrence Livermore Lab, where scientists produce more energy from nuclear fusion than the laser energy they use to power the experiment. Birds in the trees
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Arjan Makajani, who is the president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research. He holds a PhD in engineering specializing in nuclear fusion from the University of California at Berkeley. And he spent decades working to promote an economy based on completely renewable energy. He's the author of Carbon Free and Nuclear Free, a Roadmap for U.S. Energy Policy and Prosperous Renewable Maryland, Roadmap for a Healthy, Economical and Equitable Energy Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Arjan Makajani. Yeah. Hi. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Arjan. And what do you make of the big announcement from Lawrence Livermore Labs that uh, they've achieved nuclear fusion? Well, uh, one thing about uh, it is true, that it is a scientific milestone, very big one, that uh, this machine has achieved ignition. That is, the amount of laser energy put in uh, was less than the amount of fusion energy out. So positive ratio of energy so far as laser is concerned. The rest of it, um, I think um, nobody should get their hopes up that this is going to be an actual energy source. Even after decades, we are orders of magnitude away from anything real in scientific terms and extremely far away in engineering terms. So how many decades out are we before we could be powered say, by nuclear fusion? A nuclear fusion? You know, there are many approaches to nuclear fusion, and the whole field is booming with venture capital money. Uh, this particular approach to fusion, I don't, my best judgment is that it's not suitable as an energy source. Let me tell you why I think that. So, first of all, it takes a lot of energy to make a laser. And so we're not talking about a net positive energy. How much energy did you put in to make the laser and how much did you get out of this pellet? That's about a factor, give or take, I'm going to talk in very round orders of magnitude. That You're a factor of 100 off. So, we're, uh, so we have to improve by 100 times uh, just to get the net positive energy, and you have to in- improve by about 500 times to have a usable amount of energy from a single explosion. Now, how many explosions do you need, and where are they in terms of creating those explosions? They can do about one a day. You need several explosions a second. <laughs> so it's not just a numbers question. A numbers question is very daunting. You need to increase the rate of explosions by hundreds of thousands of times. You need to increase the net energy output by, say, 100, 200, 300, several hundred times. So that's already very daunting. Then the engineering materials challenges are uh, very important. So this is not just a gold-plated device. It is literally a gold device. The little container in which this explosion takes place is called a whole rom. It's literally made of gold uh, for technical reasons, not, not because they have an excess of money. For technical reasons, it has to be a heavy metal. Uh, and gold is the easiest or best material to prove this thing. So all good for an experiment. In the real world, you can't do you know, several explosions a second with gold containers. So you have to replace it by lead. 
not only that, uh, you create debris. Now, you have to be able to clean out the debris. You have to be able to... So this achievement, I think, depends, has taken so long and is so, in a way, marvelous because the exact positioning of this pellet is critical to achieving the result, among the things that's very important. Now, if you're doing a custom explosion, one a day, one in a month, you take your time to get it right. Now you have to convert this into an assembly line in which you're, you know, robotically putting in these things into this vacuum chamber automatically several times a second and position totally precisely to get this result. So you can see, and that's apart from the expense, um, apart from the challenges of being able to clean this thing out, capture all the neutrons, uh, convert them into energy, which takes a vast amount of water, you know, just like a nuclear power plant at that point, reproducing, where are you going to get the tritium? Big question. How much tritium is going to be lost? Another big question. So I think there are more promising approaches to fusion. They're all difficult. Uh, but this, I think, is maybe, even though they've achieved ignition before anybody, which is why I think it's a very signal scientific achievement. No question about it. But I don't think this holds much promise as an energy source. On the weapon side, maybe, for studying astrophysics, yeah. Uh, but as an energy source, I am skeptical. Ajahn Makajani, let's get some definitions here for the audience. So when, when you talk about explosions, I mean, the, I guess to, to try and understand fusion, the models are the sun is, is nuclear fusion, right, and stars. Right. So right. when you say explosion, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, well I mean... Um, an energy release in a short amount of time. So mm -hmm. the total amount of energy, so it literally explodes and it will shatter the container in which it is. It's all very small, you know, and or melt it, what, depending on the situation. Um, so this is a very vast amount of energy for a very tiny amount of time. So the total energy is not large. Mm. You know, like lighting an incandescent bulb, something like that, for maybe an hour or something. Um, but it happens very suddenly. I can't remember the time they said, maybe a hundred trillionth of a second, you know, 10 femtoseconds. I, I don't remember the number, so don't quote this part. So extremely short amount of time. Uh, so that's why it's an explosion, because it's a fair amount of energy, a measurable amount of energy, in a very tiny container. So it's not like if it happened, you know, out in the open air, it's going to hurt anything much, but it's a fair amount of energy in a tiny container in a very small period of time. But how do you get it as a sustained reaction, which, like the sun or the stars, which would then be a, an energy source, right? You can't just have a one-off explosion. So, right. So there are, you know, different concepts of how you do that. 
what they're trying to do in France is actually to sustain a reaction. So there you're trying to hold the deuterium and tritium at high temperatures, you know, about 10 times hotter than the center of the sun or more. Uh, in, in magnetic confined fusion, you're actually trying to hold the charged particles at extremely high temperatures for a sustained amount of time, a second, a few seconds. Uh, which is very long in fusion terms. Here, as I said, we're talking a fraction of a trillionth of a second. So trillions of times longer. And there you're actually trying to sustain the reactions um, and produce the, a continuous amount of energy. And as you lose the, as you use up your fuel, you're injecting more fuel. In the other approach, which is this laser fusion, and there are a couple of other approaches not using lasers, but the same idea. You're trying to create uh, a fusion reaction with net energy production in a very tiny amount of time because it's very hard to contain something and sustain it for seconds at temperatures that are that high. It just tends to blow the container apart. You know, just imagine, um, you know, heating up air inside a bottle, um, to a thousand degrees or, you know, uh, let alone 10 million degrees or hundred million degrees. And so those are the kind of temperatures we're talking about. It all has to happen in a vacuum, of course, it can't touch anything. And, and uh, because of whatever it touches would melt. And, and um, so the other approach is this laser fusion approach. There are a few others. There's a, there's a outfit called, uh, Focus Fusion in near Princeton uh, that's experimenting with a similar explosive approach, but they don't use lasers. So in that case, you're trying to create these tiny sort of explosive events, but many, many times a second, and then capture that energy. So in the end, you have to capture the energy. Then the one in, in, in Princeton actually they don't use deuterium and tritium. Uh, they use a hydrogen and boron. And that, that, I would say, is the gold standard of what you're trying to achieve with fusion because that would literally be a battery. Producing charged particles, you collect the positive and the negative at, at your electrodes, and um, you could do it on a scale of a few megawatts. This kind of machine, so... I think compared to the other approaches, uh, even though this has the signal achievement of achieving ignition first relative to any other machine, none of which have achieved this milestone, I think this is practically farther away from an energy source. Of course, the others have to prove that they can do ignition, you know, or, or achieve, uh, achieve uh, positive energy output. So the Livermore experiment that being Sorry. celebrated today by the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, is an experimental breakthrough, the first time yes. we've achieved ignition. But you're suggesting yes. that among the different alternative approaches, the one in France and, and at Princeton, the one at Princeton has the greatest potential for an energy source like a battery. However, they have not yet to achieve ignition. Is that, is that exactly. a summary? Exactly. And that is a very good summary. No one else has achieved what they've achieved at, at, at Livermore. So in that sense, you know, they're far ahead of everybody else. Nobody else can claim that, you know, they're on the right path till they achieve ignition. 
or, you know, a net positive output of energy. I, I tend to think that the approach they're using at, in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, is the most promising if it can be made to work. That's always a big qualifier with fusion. You know, people joke it's always 30 years away. And that has been the case since I finished my doctorate, which was 50 years ago. So, so I, you know, fusion is a very, very difficult thing that you're trying to bring the sun to the earth and bottle it up. And, you know, the easiest approach we have to uh, decarbonizing the system is to not try to bottle up the sun. It's just to catch the sun's rays, you know, on solar panels. I see. Well, that's certainly achievable, and it's turning out to be even cheaper now than other sources of energy. Uh, yeah, that's the key. One of the drawbacks of almost all fusion approaches, except the one like I've talked about in, in New Jersey, is that they're all thermal. Like existing nuclear power plants, you're generating a lot of heat, and then you're going to make steam, and you're going to run a steam turbine. The One of the big problems that we have with that whole idea is that in an era of climate change and water wars, um, there's going to be um, using water-intensive technologies to generate electricity. We should get away from that as, as much as possible and liberate the water for other uses. And also makes your electricity system less reliable if you're using, say, 5, 10 million gallon, gallons a day and evaporating that much water every day just to run your power plant, which is what a typical nuclear power plant does. Right, and the the nuclear power plants in France, which is the main source of energy for France, they're having problems because the water level in the rivers that cool the reactor cores is dropping because of climate change. So there exactly. are problems associated with nuclear f fission reactors, yeah. let, let alone mm -hmm. uh, fusion. So yeah, See, Ian. One thing we're not doing is we're not factoring in the need for resilience in an engineering sense into the electricity. Every everybody talks about resilience and climate change, but there are specific design elements into the electricity grid that you need to build in if you want resilience and a decarbonized resilience. That's hard. I think it can be done, but it cannot be done with big power plants because big power plants will not be resilient. They are vulnerable to water use. If they are thermal, they are vulnerable to the kind of problems that happened in North Carolina with people shooting up transformers. Uh, they are vulnerable to extreme heat waves and the transmission, you know, or hurricanes, the way the transmission lines went out to New Orleans a couple of years ago. And all electricity shut down uh, to the city for several days. Uh, you need to build a local resilience, and you're not going to have local fusion power plants, except of a couple of designs that are very far from realization. You, you could in concept with certain designs, but not with the designs in which most of the money is going, like, like the one in France with the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. So just in closing, that's not going to give you resilience. Sure. Period. I can but, tell you flatly, it will not. But just in closing, then, Ajahn Makajani, 
given that this is highly experimental and there are other alternatives that haven't achieved ignition, but if they did, they'd be more practical in terms of delivering mm -hmm. energy as the fission reactors do today with all their problems with the water usage, as you mm -hmm. pointed out. But just in closing, what about the present? So I take it that you're saying is that we already have the best alternative, which is solar, yeah. and that's what we should be promoting. Well, you know, solar is not a silver bullet. If you're going to have solar and wind at the core of your energy system, you need to reconceptualize the electricity grid. And that's why I did this multi-year, hour-by-hour modeling. Do you need nuclear? Do you need central station decarbonized sources? Can you reliably run with something? You know, obviously the sun doesn't shine at night. The wind could fail in the middle of the night for a week. So what do you do then? Uh, and so it took a multi-year effort, but I am very confident to say that you can build a resilient economical energy system and you have to have a very large fraction of decentralized power generation storage. Um, I call it working with the rhythms of nature. So electrons have to go around instantly and the sun and wind are not very amenable to that. So you have to be very creative in marrying those two things. How do you make the electrons go around instantly, 24-7, every day of the year, every second of the year, while respecting the fact that the sun doesn't shine all the time and the wind doesn't blow all the time? I think, I think this can be done, but we need to think differently. And we're not thinking differently. Well, Ajahn Makajani, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for calling me, Ian. It's been fascinating. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye.